I'm Chris Lefebvre, and you are listening to The Vonnegast, a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library on WQRT 99.1 FM, Indianapolis. In 1922, Kurt Vonnegut was welcomed to Earth. Over his 84 years, he became a beloved writer, known for his unflinching look at the world, and an outspoken voice for free speech and common decency. Known for his unique sardonic style, Vonnegut published 14 novels, three collections of short stories, five plays, and five works of nonfiction. In 2022, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library are celebrating Vonnegut's 100th birthday. Join us as we explore the ways Vonnegut's legacy has shaped the lives of others and continues to make souls grow. From the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, this is The Vonnegast. In 2023, KV Mel is taking a look at the role of education through the lens of Kurt Vonnegut. Core of the American experience, Kurt Vonnegut in education will include advocacy efforts for teacher support and anti-censorship practice, a new exhibit on education, panel discussions and dialogues on conflict, new exhibitions from diverse artists, and more. To help support these plans, KVML is participating in a Community Thrives campaign. In honor of Kurt's birthday, our goal is to raise $11,011 by August 12th. Even donating $5 to our A Community Thrives campaign will go a long way if we can get a large number of donors. For more information and to donate, go to kvml.org and click on Give Now at the top of our homepage. Also, don't forget our Social Justice Writing Club's first meeting, Finding Your Voice, from Microphones to Bullhorns, on August 13th. Poet and activist Tatiana Rebel will help guide you to find your voice, learn to protect your peace, and to use your voice for change. Register at kvml.org. And stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for upcoming announcements about Banned Books Week, Vonnegut Fest, and the rest of our 2022 events and programs. Hello and welcome to The Vonicast. I'm your host, Chris Lefave. It is our last episode of the season, and we're very excited to have Indianapolis jazz guitarist Charlie Ballantyne as our guest. Equipped with an impressive body of original compositions on albums like Vonnegut and Cold Coffee, Ballantyne also displays a great reverence for the jazz tradition through the inclusion of standards like My One and Only Love and East of the Sun, and an entire double album dedicated to the music of Thelonious Monk released September of 2021. In the vein of fellow guitarists like John Schofield, Bill Frizzell, and Julian Lodge, Ballantyne reconciles his educational background in jazz with the stylistic background of his instrument. He approaches the gratifying tonal and harmonic language of rock and roots with the groove, ambition, and improvisational focus of a jazz musician. Charlie, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is uh, I saw Charlie for the first time at the legendary Chatterbox here in Indianapolis uh, back in 2016. David Andercheck celebrates the anniversary uh, every year, so the, the, the Chatterbox is 40 this year which is just a wild thing to wrap oh, your wow. mind around. Yeah, 1982 feels like a long time ago. Um, but yeah, Charlie and his wife Amanda, who's a very talented saxophonist, and, and their quartet, they were playing a Tom Waits song called Temptation, and it really got my attention because I, I don't think I'd ever seen a band, a, a jazz group, pick Tom Waits in the style that you did it. Like It was, it was moody and aggressive and exciting. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we always start the interview with the connection to Vonnegut. Uh, when were you first introduced to the work of Kurt Vonnegut? Um, I remember 
I remember the exact moment, actually. My, I was on a long car ride with my dad. I was probably 14, 15, somewhere in there. A good time to be exposed to it. And, and he started describing this book he was rereading and, and how, how cool it was, this author, his, his view of time and the, and the kind of the linear road map of it. And, it, you know, it turns out it was Slaughterhouse-Five, and he, he loaned it to me. And, um, and I didn't know he was from Indianapolis or anything. I didn't, didn't know anything about him other, other than this, this great book, and that was my introduction. So it was uh, kind of love at, at first sight for me. That's, that's an interesting road trip book. Um, I did the precursor, Sirens of Titan, on a long road trip. My, uh, my, it wasn't my first Vonnegut book. In fact, I think I was already working with the museum just barely. Uh, but we were going to Florida, and no one in my family lets me drive, um, mostly due to absent-mindedness. And uh, I had the good fortune of being able to read the book entirely on one car trip. And, that, and, and if you have the chance to read a book all in one sitting, even though it's you know, long enough to where under normal circumstances you would take breaks, um, that's kind of an incredible experience to not have to take any stops in between. You, know, you can read a book all in one sitting. It's an exciting experience. Uh, how did the Vonnegut Project come about? Um, that came about just kind of organically. I was, I was reading... Um, I was reading Sirens of Titan, actually. Um, it was very late, late at night. It was probably 2 or 3 in the morning when I kind of, you know, turned that last page. And, and I was rereading it. I had read that one in high school, but it felt very new and, and fresh. It had been long enough where I forgot, you know, um, most of the details of, of that book and, and that storyline. So it just, it really hit me in a in a really special way, and I think I think that's a special book too because it, it just it has the dark humor and it it has all of that, but something about that that book in particular pulls emotionally, um, unlike the other ones for me. So I put that book down, and I, I was feeling just just something I, I wanted to get out, um, and and that night, two or three in the morning, I wrote um, the first piece, which is sympathy for Malachi Constant, um, and I. I was like, man, this is this is a cool song, and I it's not like anything I've written before. So I was like, I wonder if I read another book, if I'll write another cool song that isn't anything like I've I've written before. So that's what kind of started it was that that search for for creativity and and inspiration, just trying to to create something that wasn't necessarily you know mine, not not necessarily something I would have come up with otherwise. What I what I really found super impressive about the album, and we've listened to a lot of Vonnegut projects um, through our work with the museum for about twelve years, is that it like you captured the mood of so many books. Like you can tell with your Sirens of Titan work that you're dealing with a lot of empathy for the for the character. Like the, he goes through quite an adventure that could be termed sad, but it's such an epic adventure that at the end of the book you're kind of you know mostly overwhelmed by feeling, and just you know think you know you, you feel for the machine salo as well you're like oh what a compassionate machine <laughs> that Vonnegut created there uh and plus you know the the ending in indianapolis i don't want to give away a spoiler but i mean it's just so beautifully written and 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 sad and the way vonnegut uses snow and a bus stop like just the the imagery is very very literal and you pick that up throughout the throughout the record there's the mind of Dwayne hoover uh where you're kind of capturing just like the speed 
of how fast he's melting down. Uh, Eloise Metzger is like the soundtrack of a horror movie that was never made. Like you, you, you just found some of the darker subjects of Vonnegut's and, and, and paired it really nicely with some of the uh, more pleasant sounding stories. Uh, I have a question in here, I promise. Uh, were you trying to be as complete as you could with his bibliography or were you just going with what felt right? Um, I was just kind of, you know, randomly picking them up and, and I had a few of them. So it, it wasn't in any like chronological order or any, anything. Um, I, I knew there were, there were books I wanted to hit and read again. Um, like Slaughterhouse I read again and that was one I wanted to revisit, but some of them I, I didn't know anything about, um, you know, Timequake was, was an interest. I didn't know anything about that book. I didn't know it was his last one. I didn't, you know, so there was, there was a lot of random after I got through the, you know, Cat's Cradle, Slaughterhouse, Sirens, there's like three or four that people suggest you have to read, you know? Yeah. And once I got past those, it was kind of like more fun. It was like, I wonder what this one is, I, you know, um, some of his, his less talked about works. I, I love the less talked about works because it, it, it allows you to get into something that isn't scholarly studied to a certain degree. Like Dead Eye Dick in particular, I loved you reaching for that one. But we do get, you know, I've met every Vonnegut fanatic under the sun, and you do have them come in and say, Dead Eye Dick's my favorite Vonnegut, or Hocus Pocus is my favorite Vonnegut. And you're sitting there thinking, that's really cool. That's really cool that you could write 14 books that critics have wildly different opinions on, from Slaughterhouse Five being a at this juncture, a unilaterally praised masterpiece to uh, Slapstick being a unilaterally dismissed novel that I think is a masterpiece, uh, which kind of leads into one of my other questions. Are there Vonnegut books that you're really fond of that you never got around to, like, creating a commentary on for the novel? Um, yeah, there, there were definitely a few. I, I haven't read all 14. I think I've probably read 10 or 11 at this point. I had to take a break after I read like 10 straight back to back and, and I plan to, to read the other two or three that I'm missing. But, um, yeah, there were some that I enjoyed a lot that it was tough for me to write anything for. And one of those was, uh, that I remember was Hocus Pocus and it's a, it's a long one, you know, for, for him. And so it took me a while and I got to the end and I was, even though I enjoyed it, I was like, I don't know if this is, you know, what I'm feeling fits this, this, album that I'm going for and I'm glad I read it but yeah there was you know they all leave you feeling differently um and some of them it, it just didn't uh nothing came out um I, I I know what you mean there like with uh with Signs of Titan with the with kind of the happy resigned complete emotion at the end of the book and then with Slaughterhouse 5 just this devastation that you feel at the end of the book just feeling like oh my god it's like you know somehow even though he called the book a failure twice in the beginning of the novel he got to the end of that story and and the reader knows it's like yeah yeah, that guy probably went through a lot of hell trying to write that book. <laughs> and then you get to you get to like Breakfast of Champions and like what I loved was the dichotomy of that I had this great book discussion a couple of years ago where like some people were like, This book is so sad. And on the other hand, Vonnegut had given Trout this life that he himself says is not worth living, and yet Trout screams, Make me young. Let me do it all over again. 
I, I was like, you can go either way from that perspective. Like it, 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 it shows some value to life. And I think Vonnegut was a spokesperson, spokesperson for that, that like, if we're going to have a lot of bad moments, thank God there are chocolate chip cookies. Thank God there are dogs. Thank God there's jazz music. You know, there's, there's things that make uh, life so worthwhile. Yeah, that I th- I agree. I think that book is is one that you know I and we all get different different meaning out of out of different books, and we all interpret them differently. But to me, that it's that book encompasses just the importance of the childlike wonderment, you know, yeah. that we have to have to retain. Whether it's listening to jazz, whether it's you know, talking about boobs or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Playing you, adult kickball. You know, <laughs> yeah, drawing the asterisk. It's it's like, you know, he was he was celebrating his fiftieth birthday and he was he was searching for that uh that joy that you feel from kick the can or whatever. Yeah, I think a lot of people spend their adulthood, you know, doing that. I'm I'm flabbergasted. We both have children and there's there's stress and there's complications involved in parenting but sometimes when you see your kid doing something really dumb but funny the gut reaction to join in because it looks like so much fun like i my uh my my son calls herbie hancock's headhunters robot dinosaur music and chameleon has got to be like it's like a 17 minute long song and you know, I can't get my most of my family to listen to a song like that, but my son is just dancing like a, a crazed hippie through the living room, and it's it's a joyous thing to experience. <laughs> and you know, it's I, I only get knocked when I was like, you know, he's jumping off the couch or something like that. Sarah's like, wait, wait, wait. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is funny. Yeah. Um, how do you go about casting musicians for a project? I ask because the song Eloise Metzger on the Vonnegut album features your wife and collaborator Amanda Gardier on bass clarinet, a super underrated instrument, and Rob Funkhauser on the music box, which makes the intro to the song sound like the most perfect intro to an independent horror movie ever made. <laughs> so you have quite a sound in mind, um, and, and you have to go searching for that on every record, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the the funny thing about what you have in your head and and what ends up coming out is it's never even close and at least for me it's like you know maybe with classical music or something they really dial it in and pinpoint that stuff but i i kind of write these things and just you know kind of hope for the best i did know i'd played with rob before rob funkhauser and we'd done some kind of like avant-garde um you know very out there shows and he had that you know it sounded like a just creepy jack-in-the-box or something and um i i thought it was perfect for for that that song because it's i mean it's it's a horrible um tragedy that happens a a pregnant woman dies you know and i i thought you know what what better way to convey that than than have this horrifying sound of a children's toy yeah you know introduce this song um and i think mina cohane a great uh, pianist, singer, and arranger. I hired her to play piano and arrange the music. The bass clarinet was her idea. I think she kind of piggybacked off of you know what I was thinking for the the song and and really ran with it. And the I think Rob Dixon was on that session and he was he said something I'll never forget. He was like, "Yeah, if you want to make people feel sad, just <laughs> break out the bass clarinet." Um, and it's true, you know, it just has that woody dark timbre and the low register and um yeah the tricky part was getting our hands on one i think amanda had to snag one from ball state or, or something but yeah. Uh, um yeah it was it was a good call by mina um great great arranging call 
I, I could talk to you about the Vonnegut album for this entire conversation because <laughs> uh, we got to do that project for WFYI and yeah. Mina Cohane uh, had the four classical musicians. I think for the most part, they're people that play at the Chatterbox on Tuesday nights with the Classical Revolution and have careers entirely of their own, but they got contracted to play the, the gig. And then I was reading from Vonnegut books in between songs. Uh, you had Rob Dixon, Cassius Goins, um, and your bass player, who I've Jesse. met many times, Jesse Whitman. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, pretty big band for an enormous sound, and that was really cool. Uh, who all is playing on the new album? The new one is it's just quartet. It's uh, me, Jesse, Cassius on drums again, and this time Stephen Jones on uh, piano. So a little more scaled back than the than the Vonnegut project. Yeah, yeah, that's probably you know I don't I don't imagine doing a bigger project than the Vonnegut thing, and, and a, a lot of that was I, I felt like I was scoring, um, you know, doing my best to kind of score this writing for for the listener for the reader and so i i just heard like a cinematic um and that's perfect because when visitors come into the vonnegut library i always describe your record as the soundtrack to vonnegut movies never made i mean it's just it's, it, it's so it's so unbelievably visual like you get put in that space and you know it's, it's hard to tell stories through instrumental music it's that's that's an admirable <laughs> achievement oh thanks that'd be a hard thing to do um, how did you get started in the world of music? Um, it's, uh, you know, pretty, not a very interesting story. My dad was a, is still a guitar player. Um, my mom, you know, was a, a singer as I was growing up. So I'm a, I'm a legacy, um, and it, which was convenient for a lot of reasons. The, the main one being guitars instead it's expensive and well they were already around you know <laughs> so i could just um pick them up but yeah i uh my dad really exposed me to a lot of great music i wasn't interested in, in it until i was a teenager probably like 13 14 15 and he started to kind of dish out like very eclectic but all guitar related like west montgomery stevie ray vaughn Jimi hendrix uh you know, Pat Metheny, John Schofield. So just all these. Jeff Beck was a big one that I remember liking as a kid, but um, just got exposed to some really good music early on. Yeah, and it wasn't all jazz, right? It was everything, because your, your dad's got pretty eclectic taste from the few times I've met him. Yeah, yeah, it was just across the board. I think the only common common thread was, like, there was a great guitar player, and ever, like Steely Dan, you know? So it was it was just like... The only only thing all these things had in common was just incredible guitar work, and and he, I think he worked really hard. It, it kind of, you know, today it would be like the equivalent to you sending your kid like a Spotify playlist. But he, <laughs> like, I didn't live down here. I lived in northern Indiana, so I'd come down to visit him, and every time I came down, he would, you know, have a bag of like twenty CDs and be like, "All right, check these out now." Interesting. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, it was such a massive, massive uh, project learning to love music back in the day before you had Spotify and digital music. Like, I remember my father was a guitarist as well, played in a band, uh, had a day job. But, I mean, it, the weirdest part for me was, like, you know, he, he was not the most patient person in the world, especially with me being kind of a space cadet. Um, so, I mean, he was like, I'm going to teach you the chords on a guitar once. And of course, I lost the piece of paper, and I never—I didn't think about it for years. And then one day, I just found it, and I was like, "Oh, 
oh, these dots are supposed to signify where you put your fingers. Okay, so like years later, without any of this involvement, <laughs> I, I learned some basic chords. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it was his record collection, and it it freaked him out. It freaked him out that my brother and I were going through his generations of, of music. He was like, what? When I was a kid, we weren't listening to Perry Como. I wasn't asking my grandparents <laughs> what I ought to be listening to, or your grandparents. And I, I thought, yeah, yeah, I bet that is, I bet that is weird. I bet he feels weird about that. Um, uh, but he was happy about it in the long run. Um, long story short, I just, I just thought that was interesting. Um, we talked a little bit about influences. I, I, I've always wanted to ask you as a, as a friend and colleague, like you went for professional musician like you went to the jacob school at iu which is a hardcore music school uh every music major i've ever met in my life could count their free time on one partially amputated hand um i thought that was really interesting like did you have bands growing up like like high school bands for fun college bands for fun um you know i uh I grew up in, in kind of the middle of nowhere in northern Indiana, and there there weren't many people that played music. There was one guy who was who was really into Bob Dylan, and he was a great songwriter. So I, I kind of attached myself to him, and we we kind of shared our, our love of, of that music and got a guy who owned a bass, got a guy who owned a drum set, and we were like, yeah, let's do, like, this coffee shop. And, you know, so so that was kind of my my musical, uh, you know, genesis as far as, as, like, being a professional goes. And I, I'm sure it was horrible. <laughs> I was going to say, do you, have, do you have cassette tapes lying around of this? <laughs> no, I'm really thankful. It was just pre-Facebook, so, like, nothing nothing exists um, from this band except, you know, how I idealize it, these memories in my head, you know. So yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to, uh, to have you know, something that was, I'm sure, truly awful <laughs> and really look back on it fondly and not be reminded of it in a memory like, here's what you were doing 20 years ago. I, I so appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I, I had several bands in high school, but that was way before social media. So, like, if my mother, the minute she realized I was never coming home to grab the tape cassettes, was just like, well, I don't need these, <laughs> which, you know, is, is a blessing and a curse. Um I had to buy beer for a music festival once, and in lieu of paying me back, a friend of mine was like, how about I just give you all the videos of all the bands you've ever played in? And I'm like, yes, can't wait to watch this. And like some of it is like, this is really great. And some of it is like, wow, wow, that was, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like, you know, it's like listening to your own voice. It's like, oh, Man, that's what we sounded like back. Oh, this is not good. I just love that the guy stuck a video camera on the top of a washing machine in a Muncie basement one night, and I was like, "Well, boy, that sound is just." Like... <laughs> I don't know. The... I hope I don't live through the end of the world, but that's what it'll sound like. <laughs> um, so, what are your major influences? Um, there's there's so many. It's it's hard to pinpoint. I'm always I'm still gaining more. You know, I still am a student. Um, definitely more so than than anything else. But right now, um, well, I'll start at the beginning. What what made me fall in love with the instrument was a common tale. It was Hendrix. You know, yeah. I I heard him, heard the wah pedal, heard the distortion, and you know, I learned Purple Haze, and I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do, forever. You know, and uh, so I, I got into to that kind of era, you know, Jeff Beck, Hendrix, 
um, then into like Stevie Ray, and then I, I went to IU and got into the jazz thing. I wasn't a jazz major when I got there. I kind of um, just started hanging out with all the jazz musicians. So I was like, oh, I think I want to, you know, try this out, go to this music school. And um, then I got really into West Montgomery, Grant Green, you know, some of the older like Blue Note era jazz people, Jim Hall, um, Joe Pass, and that kind of evolved into like Pat Metheny, Bill Frizzell, John Schofield, and you know, um, and now there's there's some young guys that uh, young guys my age, you know, so in their thirties, not super young, but um, Julian Lodge is a big one that he really sticks out. He does. There's some there's something about him. He's kind of a once in a generation like Matheny, I think, where it's there's there's something that you can't you can't quite pin pinpoint but it's like he's a little more special than everyone else thank you for acknowledging that because whenever i listen to one of his tracks i keep waiting for him to do something that i'm like oh that sounds like and and i just like there's i draw a blank or something like, and i saw him on this hilarious american acoustic tour down in um down in cincinnati and i, and I didn't really associate julian lodge with playing the acoustic guitar but he has a side project with the guitar player from yeah. the punch brothers and just watching him play, and I was just like, wow, he just adapts himself to wherever the hell he feels like being. And then when he goes back to jazz music, you're still, you're so blown away at the energy, the enthusiasm, and, and still the capacity to improv while working within, I, I don't know, I, I never feel like he's just soloing over a groove. I never feel that. I feel like there's so much more going on. I don't know if it's Dave King on the drums or something. Like, I mean, he, he has quite a band. Yeah. Going on right now well, too. and it's interesting. We talked with Dave King about it. We, you know, as you know, we recorded with Dave King recently, and um, I asked him a lot. I was just bugging the <laughs> out of him about Julian, <laughs> and I'm sure he hated it. But I was, I was just like, yeah. So what's it, you know, what's it like? And um, you know, asking him about his playing, and and he was like, Julian's one of the only people. And this is kind of a misconception about improvisation that we're really creating from off the top of our head, which is kind of true. It's it's more like we've practiced all this stuff and we're just kind of stringing it together in a slightly different yeah. way than we have before. But he said Julian's one of the only people that it's, it's true inspiration, it's true creation. He's, night after night, these intros he's doing are different. These, these songs are different and it's, it's truly coming out of him in that moment and he's yeah. never done it before. And I, I think that's really what makes it special. It's like, it's a, you know it's like the Indiana Jones leap of faith. You just kind of step out there and you hope for the best. And very few people are able to do that uh, creatively. Yeah, and well, and it has to do with how you feel about the audience. I, I guess it's it's helpful if you already have a have a. Sorry, this is going to go into a deeper thing too. When we talked to John Fishman about the process of improv being one, two, three, go. Not only do you have to really trust the people you're playing with, but you have to trust the audience not to leave. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's, you know, you, you just have to be at a very high level. But I like you talking about improv. Um, for professional musicians, it's sometimes a lot more like you have rehearsed for 20-something years. You've gone to school for it. So it's not so much like emptying the brain that had nothing in it to begin with as it is like a very full brain that you have lots of great ideas to shoot from. Uh, that's that's a very different thing, but equally beautiful. Um, so you have a yeah. Talk about your new project a little bit. I want to get some information about that. Yeah, it's um, a project that yeah you know, I've been writing for for a while. It's uh, largely kind of 
you know, based around my, my own struggles with addiction and um, all that fun stuff that, you know, a lot of us do early on in our career. Um, and it's, uh, you know, so, so tackling that kind of subject matter was, was tricky and, and kind of just a, a funny thing to do. And it was, it was difficult, but it was also very rewarding. You know, it's kind of just like facing, facing your demons in this, this very personal way. So it's, a, it's an album called Falling Grace, which is a, a great Steve Swallow song. There's a couple standards on there, and that's one of them. And then we also do a, a Coldplay cover. Um, of, fix You. Yeah, <laughs> Fix You. That's the, uh, that's the single that we just released, so that one's out there. And then, um, yeah, just a, a few originals. And, yeah, it's a, uh, a quartet album, No Horn. I, I've been playing. I have a weekly gig at the Chatterbox Jazz Club with the Stephen Jones group, and... And so we've really kind of, you know, gotten gotten used to each other, have a shorthand, and have gotten very comfortable, you know, with the piano-guitar relationship, with the, which is a tricky one when you can both play so many notes. It's, yeah. it's kind of hard to navigate that, but he's just such a, a genius um, and, and I think one of, you know, a true unsung hero of, of the Indianapolis jazz community. He's, like, on everyone's favorite jazz record you he's, know he's and, a killer player for sure and yeah but he's he's just kind of he likes to be under the radar so i i really it, it felt like a moment in my my career where i felt like oh i can i've made it this far i can call steven to do a record you know it, nice. it felt like a uh I'd, I'd arrived somewhere just being able to call him yeah the uh, <clears throat> so the original songs are, are pretty personal on this one then yeah yeah, the uh, we're gonna be releasing another single in a couple weeks um, called "Sweet Tooth," and that is, uh, you know, that one is kind of about addictions jumping. And when I when I quit drinking, probably I don't really keep track. It was probably eight or nine years ago. Um, I just went through this phase, and I didn't even know what was happening. But every night at like ten or eleven, you know, when I typically have have a drink or, or two or three or four I started going I lived right by a steak and shake on 54th and Keystone and I just started consuming so many strawberry milkshakes <laughs> um, I think I gained like 30 pounds probably um, and it was right when I first started dating Amanda my my wife and I'm sure she just thought like what is up with this guy he leaves every night at 11 to go get milkshakes and and so that's what what that song is about it was kind of a you know yeah an interesting um learning moment for me where it's like you know you it it taught me that you never become not an addict you know you just have to figure out how to shape these addictions and how to how to channel them and how to get them to manifest into something good that isn't booze or, or drugs or milkshakes, you know. Yeah, milkshakes. That's really tough. Uh, big big, <laughs> big shout out to Steak and Shake. I, uh, I you know having gone to way too many fish concerts, we always go to the Steak and Shake afterwards, and we've called it the Sacrament for many years now. <laughs> um, not a lot of people call Steak and Shake the Sacrament, but I do. Um, yeah. It, there's a lot of deep commentary on that, especially having lived through a pandemic. Um, you know, when I became a dad, there was a part of me that felt like alcohol in particular just passive aggressively broke up with me. 
Like it, it is very weird. Uh, having grown up Catholic, I worry I hurt alcohol's feelings, and <laughs> you know, and that's when people like Lewis Black are like, "Why do you feel bad for an inanimate object?" And I'm like, "I don't have a good answer for that." Um, but I, it, it was, it was such a part of my, you know, you and I met each other in a bar, and I was living in that bar most nights, and then all of a sudden you have a kid, and you're like, "All right, this is impossible to do when it's just one person." It just is, you know, a lot easier to do with two people fully focused. You might actually get. 75 minutes of alone time before you pass out. Yeah. Um, and you want that. And it's, I can't even fathom if I had to prioritize getting, and, and with the beginning of the pandemic, you're like, what local businesses can I support? Oh, I know breweries. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm proud that I did that because they probably really struggled, but I also gained 40 pounds in 50 seconds. And I'm like, crap, I, I can't <laughs> wear my pants anymore. Like there are those challenges to channel your habits. And I started making terrible paintings during the pandemic because I just had to get away from any kind of, you need some kind of outlet for whatever's stressing you out. You need to have it. And, and, um, became a lot harder to be like, let's take, let's have a jam band jam session when there's this deadly pandemic going on. Yeah. Yeah. And being aware of that, you know, is, is part of it too. Just knowing that that's what's happening, you know, and yeah. that you need to, you need to find something that isn't, gonna hurt you or anybody else yeah which yeah turned out to be being bad at painting <laughs> that's in, good in, 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 in i've my... seen those that's subjective they're, they're good <laughs> no I, I i i like them a lot um but i i do remember showing them to my mom and she was just kind of like okay so <laughs> you and what you and wesley have <laughs> you and your four-year-old have a lot in common um you've been a musician for a while now any favorite gigs stand out in your mm-hmm. mind one where the rush carried you for some time um that's tough, you know. I uh, the um, for for different reasons, there are definitely different gigs that stand out. I remember the uh, the Dylan Life Is Brief album release shows, and um, you know that music was was cool. I really liked how how we arranged that music instrumentally, which was a challenge. But um, I just remember like going outside after the first show, and usually. The first show sells out, you know, sometimes, and, and ours was sold out. Um, and the second show almost never sells out. And I walked outside, and there was, like, a line around the block. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is a moment, you know. This is a record that I'd only done original music up to that point. And I was like, I guess people care about Bob Dylan's music. And it really was. It wasn't a testament to how, how great we were or anything. It was a testament to the immense following that that he has just the the huge impact he's had on um on music it was just all all sorts of different people and and people really wanted to get into that show i think we probably could have sold out two nights in hindsight i guess that's true um you know it's funny i took a really good friend of mine who's who's obsessed with bob dylan but we had that in common you know we all owned every cd back in the day uh i was coming in from louisville because they were having a hunter s thompson festival and so i you know i was had to drive like right to his house and then right to the jazz kitchen to catch a show uh i do remember from that night the immense emotion of the song masters of war that you and rob dixon were going into and just like hitting notes that aren't on the register and 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 the and the and the musical chaos of that song like was really nicely reflected with your band um so i mean that i i can i can see how maybe at the end of a show like that where you know that the audience is with you and maybe still ha- maybe has like that same level of passion for a song that i can only imagine was risky as hell like that song ends with i hope that you die and your death <laughs> will come soon <laughs> it's it's not passive <laughs> no it's uh 
you know, and that was that was my fear of, of that record was like, you know, I love this music, other people love this music, and and I did learn a lot uh, through it. Um, but part of it was how to how to capture words when there aren't any, when you're not gonna gonna yeah. have any singers on it. That was part of the challenge. Um, and then also how to how to do it in a way that these people who feel ownership over this music, which everyone in the room did, yeah, which I wasn't aware of at the time. Well, yeah, it's, he has obsessive, yeah, an obsessive fan base. I yeah. still like get emails. Like that album was released like six years ago or something, <laughs> and people will still be like, you know, I really think you should have done this on Hattie Carroll, or I think, you know, and and I, I get it. I, it doesn't make me angry at all if they said that about my original music i'd be like well that's not cool but uh <laughs> but it's like they we all have a piece of this like yeah. you know bob wrote it and it's it's his music but we all it's all of ours and yeah full full accountability i was one of the I said charlie <laughs> facebook messages going hey you're gonna do visions of johanna you're gonna do visions of... <laughs> yeah looking back on it that feels real mature no, I didn't mind it at all. Every everyone had well, and that's the other thing. He has like eight thousand songs, and I was like, let's do twelve. So everyone had their opinion on what that those those songs needed to be. Uh, he recently turned eighty, and I remember you know doing the um, trying to make a playlist with eighty songs on. It. I'm like, oh, that might be kind of daunting. And then ten minutes later, I'm like, huh, three hundred songs is excessive. I mean, <laughs> um, we both have kids. Is there a feeling much better in the world than listening to music with your kid and getting the impression they're enjoying it as much as you are? No, I I love it. Um, it's well, and you know what, a feeling I didn't anticipate that is just so adorable. And when they start to develop taste. Um, I've been listening, I've been doing this project with uh, Sleepy Floyd, a great drummer, and I've been listening to a lot of kind of jazz fusion and, you know, kind of funk-based stuff. So Uber Jam, John Schofield's record, is a big one that I've been listening to. And the other day, I turned it on in the car, and River's in the back, and she just goes, no Uber Jam. (laughs) And that was almost as cool to me as her, like, loving you know the music we're listening to because it was it was just cute the way she said it but it's also like oh she's got she's got a preference here like you know and they're already forming at age two and she doesn't want to hear uber jam right now when my son discovered modesky martin and wood that made both my (laughs) wife and i's brains just explode (laughs) because it was it was combustication so it's that opening song where you can hear dj logic in the background scratching and that's the that's the song that's the hill that he chose to die on. So we were going to a Fourth of July party, and I've got Jasper, the oldest, in the car, going, "No, Wesley, not Modesky Martin Wood." And then he gets really excited. He's like, "Yes, Modesky Martin." I don't know. It was just like, this is the upside of having like this. Is the, it was such a joyful experience. Yeah, it is. It's time for our regular segment, the speed round. This round will consist of rapid fire questions. We'll alternate between Vonnegut questions and general questions. Say the first thing that comes into your mind. Charlie Ballantyne, are you ready? Yes. Okay, you're the second person to say yes to that question in <laughs> 10 episodes. Uh, you have a great album called Cold Coffee. Any plans to do a follow-up called Cold Pizza? No, but that's good. Okay. I, I just, <laughs> that would have to be one of those avant-garde albums. It's like cold pizza for breakfast. The song is 35 minutes you just long. <laughs> play the album in reverse, I think. is. I, I would love to hear Moon City in, in, in reverse. That's, that, that would be really cool. Uh, can you name some authors you love beyond Vonnegut? 
Yeah, you know, the, the classics I, I read a lot and, and still read a lot as, as a kid. J.D. Salinger, I, I read a lot of Raymond Chandler um, growing up. And then um, the new one, you might have introduced him to me or we might have just started talking about him, Murakami. Oh, um, man, I went on a Murakami binge. Yeah, I've been it's, reading a lot of that lately. He's hard to put down after a while. He's so good. Yeah, yeah, so he's been, he's been the, new, the new one I've gotten into. Nice. How do you feel about double dipping a chip at parties, pro or anti? Oh, very anti. I'm a total. You're a bit of a germaphobe. Oh yeah, man. If if anyone licks their fingers on a community like situation, I'm out. I'm probably just gonna leave the building. <laughs> I can't do it. Even if it's a friend, I'm just you know can't do it. Okay, I got a long <laughs> long list of stories I can't tell you. Though. Thank you so much. I don't want to add to your anxiety. Uh, you've played the legendary Chatterbox in Indianapolis for many years now. When you eat there, do you go with the Jamaican patty or the frozen pizza? Um, I did both of those for a long time, but now I'm I'm partial to the pretzel with nacho cheese. I didn't know that was one of the, this is what happens when you have a kid and you spend less time in a bar. That's yeah. man, I feel genuinely guilty about that. I'll have to write uh, David an apology letter. <laughs> um, if you weren't a musician, what would you be doing with your life right now? Um, I've never even considered it. Um, I was, I was an English major for five minutes and I just, you know, I, I realized there was no other option. Um, you've done a fair amount of touring. Favorite city you've visited so far? Favorite road meal? Um, okay, that's good. Um, there's, there's a lot of cities I like. We always do Detroit and Windsor, Canada, and surprisingly Windsor, you know, it's it's a really cool, small little little college town I like a lot. We've had um, really good experiences in Rochester, New York, too. We go there quite a bit. And I'd say my favorite meal last year, we were in Buffalo. Um, and it was, a, it was a great show. And at the end of the night, you know, we had asked the promoter before the show, like, where to get wings yeah. afterwards. And um, so he, he mentioned some places. And then after, as he was like, you know we were walking off the stage he got on the mic and thanked us and took a poll from the crowd and they directed us to a place called gabriel's gate nice um, which it's like where all all the locals kind of go for like the best buffalo wings and and so we had i got a 20 piece thinking it was like they were like midwest wings but these are like Humo yeah it's like a drumstick <laughs> pretty so i had like this massive plate you know of, of wings i think i got through like 12 and i was i was feeling it i was getting the meat sweats that's that's always fun to be on the road trip after the meat sweats <laughs> yeah driving in the car with four other guys for eight hours the next day after you've consumed that much buffalo wings uh it's it's tragic i, I want to take sarah to new orleans so badly but i'm just like man i doing that drive in the aftermath of eating nothing but jambalaya for like four or five days is, <laughs> is really hard it's a gamble yeah it's a gamble is putting it kindly <laughs> Uh, the New Yorker, a periodical of note, recently posted an article entitled Can Pickleball Save America? Now, I have no idea what pickleball is. Do you feel, as I do, that they should give actual pickles a chance to save America first? Yes. Okay, good. I was. Uh, thank you for rolling with me on that one. I was like, I'm not even. A, I'm not even a pickle fanatic, but I was like, I just feel like it's too soon to give pickleball any kind of. Like, I, I still don't quite know what it is. Um, how angry do mornings make you? Um... 
really angry. I uh, <laughs> recently, <laughs> as a jazz musician, you know, I play late, and recently River, my daughter, figured out how to crawl out of her crib, so usually we'd let her chill for an hour, you know, from like 7 to 8 or yeah. 6 to 7, and now I just wake up at 6 a.m. every day with someone staring me in the face that just goes, <laughs> says hi, and it's, you know, it's mornings have always been tough for me. Uh, Kurt was appreciated the world over for the advice that he gave in not only his writing, but in his classes, speeches, and letters. What advice do you have for the young people out there? Oh, man. I think I think the biggest one that, that I find, you know, teaching um, college students especially is that we we have to get back to accepting failure as a part of this process no matter what you're doing um and i think i think more and more you know we fear adversity especially the younger generations and um you know which there's a lot of good things like bullying has been eradicated a little bit and the, yeah. you know things like that which are good but i don't think we considered that you know you know these these talents that come out of adversity probably would have laid dormant yeah. in ideal circumstance um so i'd say you know failure um just do it do it as hard as you can and grow from it it's so funny i, w I was up in chicago with some friends uh one of whom is you know he's a good guy uh, i get i give him a type a personality to a certain degree like he's very nitpicky we were sitting there having an interesting conversation about failure and he was talking very liberally about you know, firing people. And I was giving him some pushback about that. And, and another friend of mine was like, aren't you kind of the poster child, though, of like someone who's failed at a million things in life? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, which made the road really long. Like it, it, it made the journey to wherever I am right now, like very long and convoluted and confusing and scary. And it, it touched off this interesting conversation as to whether there's like any other option. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really believe in utopia either. I don't think Kurt Vonnegut did. And I think it was really unique that he, I'm really happy that we get students in the museum all the time because you'll see how Kurt failed at businesses and failed at school sometimes and got a million rejection letters that he had to plod through. He had to keep going, even though life was not going well on any level whatsoever. Um, Perhaps that is very, very necessary <laughs> in, a, yeah. in a society. Yeah, it it really is. It's uh, especially you know, and I'm I'm biased in a creative field. Um, you know, it just has to be you. You're just diving into the deep end. You know, for years and you know, improvising. It's it's just part of that. You're going to fail. I'm still like I still embrace the failure. Like when when I have a really bad gig, I I don't. I don't reflect too much. I just appreciate the fact that I'm going to grow from it and move on. So, so yeah, just fail, fail as hard as you can for as long as you can. And, yeah, <laughs> and, and and Vonnegut said something like that in a letter to Nanny once. He said, uh, he, he said, you know, schools fall apart, life falls apart, and uh, and it's okay. You're a space alien named Nan. I'm a space alien named Kurt. He literally wrote this to his daughter, and I really loved it. Um, you know, he said, as for my expectations for you, well, I never graduated college and you've already superseded me. So my advice to you is to survive. I got out of the war. I survived for a while, went to GE, thought I'd survive some more. Like it, it's a really, really interesting way to look at the world. You know, we're all just walking each other home, Ram Dass <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of perspective. Um, and, and, and maybe it's for the betterment of all. I, I, I have fear of failure. I think everybody does to a certain degree. And it's a question of how you, kind of like addictions, how you cope with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, and there's also the concept I heard Kobe Bryant said this once where there's there's importance in and not even considering it. You're going to fail, but I mean, there's really no point in wondering yeah, what happens if you fail. You know, it's a it's a powerful tool to to go into everything um, with that type of mentality yeah i mean even when sarah and i were talking about having kids i remember her being like okay if you're waiting for the perfect moment it's never going to arrive because you're waiting for the day where life isn't scary anymore and that doesn't exist so (laughs) (laughs) that's good anyway on that note uh charlie ballantyne thank you so much for your time and joining us here today uh for the finale of the first season of the vonicast yeah thanks chris i I love you man and uh, we've we've had some some great conversations about uh vonnegut and music i'm glad we finally documented one of them yeah very nice man i uh i hope i get to see you at the chatterbox some thursday night soon um, what a great venue that is. And the Jazz Kitchen, too. They recently got booked Kamasi, Washington. I'm looking forward to seeing I that. I saw that. That's going to be wild. Uh, to learn more about Charlie Ballantyne and his art, please visit charlieballantyne.com. Yep. Uh, until next time, Vonnegutian, stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials for more exciting episodes coming soon. Thanks for listening to the Vonicast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Charlie Ballantyne. To see and hear more from him, head to charlieballantyne.com. And stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for info on all our events and programs, including new episodes of the Vonicast coming in the fall. The Vonicast is a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library and WQRT Indianapolis. Special thanks to our guest, Charlie Ballantyne. The Vonicast is produced by Fiona Duffy and Drew DeSimone. Audio mix and editing by Nick Corey. Cover art by Arusiak Pivazian. Vonicast episodes and all other KVML programming can be found on kvml.org and on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vonnegut Library.